Welcome to Equipping the Body. I'm Dr. Brad Starnes, and today we're going to continue through the book of 1 Peter. And we find ourselves in a intermediate period, kind of, uh, sort of speak. Um, Peter deals with the church, as we looked at verses 4 through 10, um, and then in verses 11 and 12, uh, there's a just small section about spiritual warfare, very, very, very small. Um, and then he goes on in 13 through the rest and talks about submission, submission wives to husbands, submissions everybody to the government within reason. Obviously, God comes first because, um, well, we'll get into that when we get there. And then submission to church, uh, to church leaders, spiritual leaders, etc., uh, it's just all kind of dealt with in this next section. But coming off of uh, the church, the body of Christ, and he describes it as we saw in verses 4 through 10, both in the local church, the visible church, and the invisible church, the actual body of Christ, um, there's just a short section, just two verses, where he kind of changes subjects and talks about uh, spiritual warfare Um the fight against the flesh, as I've titled it. And what we're going to note about this fight is the internal conflict and the external consequence. It's just a way to remember this text. Uh, two points, two verses. Okay? don't. It does not get uh, more simple than this outline I'm fixing to give you. The fight against the flesh. Verse 11, the internal consequence. Verse 12, excuse me, the internal conflict, verse 12, the external um, consequence. So it just doesn't get any more simple than that, more simpler, any more simple, I don't know. Uh, but anyways, here we go. First Peter chapter 2, verses 11 through 12. Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lust which war against the soul, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. And so we're looking at this subject, fighting against the flesh. The fight against the flesh. You know, Holiness is sort of a sub-theme that runs through the book of First Peter, although the larger theme is the best is yet to come. Uh, he's speaking to persecuted Christians, and more often than not, how to live through this time, realizing that, that better days are ahead as he looks in chapters 1, uh, excuse me, chapter 1, as he deals with that. But he does believe, remind believers several times to stay away from sin, to live clean lives. In other words, to practice holiness. For example, going back in chapter 1, he said, Be holy as I am holy. And then here he talks about fighting against the flesh. So, the fight against the flesh, the war for holiness, it's seen in two parts. Verse 11, the internal conflict. Let's start there. He says, Beloved, I 
beseech you, I beg you. Notice the urgency of his words. Notice also his audience, beloved. I'll remind you once and again, he's not speaking to lost people. He's speaking not to simply professors of faith, but possessors of faith, truly converted people. It says, Beloved, I beg you, I call you to my side. That word beg and beseech, it's a strong word. It means I, I call you to this side. I'm calling you to do something. I'm exhorting you to do something with the deepest sincerity. I mean, it's a strong word. I, I really can't tell you how strong it is um, in English, but it really is. In the Greek, it's a, it's a much stronger word than just simply asking somebody to do something. As sojourners and pilgrims, he's reminding them that they live in the world, but they are not of the world. If you're a child of God, this word is not, world is not your home. You are a pilgrim. You are a sojourner. You are a traveler. You are, as this old song says, a wayfaring stranger. And so he says, I, I'm begging you, believers, strangers to this world. Now, what is he begging them to do? I mean, I, we get it. There's a lot of drama there. I beseech you, beloved, as pilgrims and strangers. Okay, get to the point, Peter. What are you begging us to do? What? What is the question? And he says in the next phrase, abstain from fleshly lust which war against the soul, not against the body, against the soul, the heart, the mind, the seat of consciousness. You see, friend, immediately we become aware that the fight against the flesh is an internal conflict. It is an internal conflict. When you got saved, your soul was saved. But your flesh is still corrupted. And there's a war going on between the two. That part of you, that sin nature, is still fighting against the new nature. And they're battling constantly. And it's the flesh, the, the humanity of you, that, that desires those sinful lusts. Now, we typically excuse me, think of the word lust in the sexual sense to describe sexual sin. But he uses it here in generic sense. It, it, Anything, any type of sin, any fleshly desire that's against the laws and uh, principles of God. Now, it doesn't have to be a just a sexual sin. That's not how the word is used in this context. And that's blatantly obvious because um, there's different types of sin besides sex, sexual sins. So he says here it's an internal conflict. Fighting against flesh, war against your so, now, why do I say it's an internal conflict besides just the fact that he says warning against your soul? Because the battle takes place in the mind, on the inside, before the sin is even committed. You know, sinners just sin for the sake of sinning, but people that are saved have to make a decision because you've been awakened. You, In other words, you know better. Now, let's suppose a man worked in sales, okay, and he's got to hit a quota. All right, he needs to log 100 sales calls, and uh, by Monday, uh, or he's going to be in hot water. And he's logged 75 sales calls. I, I had a job where you had to log sales calls, so I that's how my mind works. Well, it's Monday morning, 
and he gets to work early and he knows that he's 20 calls short. And so he makes a decision to go into his computer to backdate some things, fudge the numbers, and he's got 100 sales calls. He is lying. He is defrauding his company, and lying is a sin. I mean, that's bottom line. He's, he's lying for personal gain. That is a sin, okay? But before his finger ever touched a key on that keyboard of his computer, he had to make a decision in his brain to commit that sin. And so that is why we say that the battle is a, it's an internal conflict because um, the man, yeah, he, he's lying, but before he lies with his hands typing on that computer and, and fudging his numbers, he has to make a decision in his heart to knowingly and willfully commit said act. Ladies and gentlemen, the battle's internal. The conflict is internal. It's our nature, our desires, that part of us that was never, that has not yet been uh, sanctified. Now, our soul's saved. That's, that's true. That's why you have an awareness of sin and a desire to abstain from it. But the flesh is not going to be dealt with until the resurrection when we get a glorified body. Now, sin is deeper than just outward acts. Now, don't get me wrong, typing the lie into the computer to fudge his number, that's an outward act, that's a sin. But sin is deeper than the outside. Sin is motivations, desires, agendas, attitudes. Wars against your soul, not against your hands. It's an internal conflict. Now, he would not ask us to do something that we didn't have the ability to do. Um, people say, well, you know, sanctification is the Holy Spirit working in you and through you. Absolutely. But sanctification is not passive. It doesn't mean you just sit on your hands and close your eyes and go, okay, the Holy Spirit's going to make me more like Jesus. I'm just, I'm just sitting here waiting on it. That's not how it works. Sanctification is not passive. He calls us to abstain. That's a verb, to do something or to not do something. Peter's calling us to make a decision to perform an action. And what is that action? To abstain from the fleshly desires. Now that word abstain doesn't simply mean not do it, but it means to stay away from it, to abstain from it, to, 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 to cast it away. Why? Because the temptation is going to strike the brain. I'll give you an example. If somebody struggles with alcohol abuse, I would not just counsel them to not drink. I would counsel them to not even walk down the beer aisle in a grocery store. I would go as far to counsel them that if they go to a wedding or something or and there's alcohol, to turn around and leave because the battle's in the mind. And this person is predisposed here. And so... I would abstain, don't just don't do it, but flee from it. Now, none of this excuses sin in and of itself. 
um, the fact that we do battle. And let me say this, because some people say, well, you know, I just don't struggle with anything like that. Well, then you're better than the Apostle Paul, because Romans chapter 7, Paul writes, For what I am doing, I do not understand. For what I will to do, that I do not practice. But what I hate, that I do. By the way, this is mature Paul. This is Paul later in ministry, and he's still struggling with his fight against the flesh. It's an internal conflict. It's one, one victory at a time. We all struggle with sin temptations. You may have different ones. You may have more. You may have less. But all of us have a sin nature. And it's a fight. 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. Now, that doesn't excuse sin. It's not, well, you know, nobody's perfect. That's everybody's favorite cop-out when they're caught in sin. Well, nobody's perfect. That that. That is just such a poor excuse, and a poor excuse is as good as any. Excuse is an excuse. We do have to abstain. Peter's not telling us to be passive and just say, well, I'm not perfect, let me sit on my hands. No, it's a fight. Get in the fight. Swing. Now, how do we do that? How do I, Pastor, you know, it's easy for you to sit here and say, it's an internal fight. You're being descriptive. I need some application. How do I do this? Well, I'm glad you asked. Psalms 119.11, Your word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against you. You fight with the weapon that God's given you. The sword of the Lord, the word of God. You need to fill your mind with the word of God. And you know what I'm talking about, child of God, because if you've ever been tempted and all of a sudden a Bible verse that deals with that temptation just pops up in your brain, something you read a week ago, two weeks ago, maybe a year ago. Well, how is that? That's what the psalmist is describing in Psalms 119.11. That's why we need to hide his word in our heart, that we may not sin against him. This internal conflict is fought with the weapon of the word. Now, it's not just a fight for the sake of fighting. There's an external consequence. And that external consequence is the witness of the believer. He says, Having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works which they observe glorify God in the day of visitation. The external conflict is that when a Christian fights against the flesh and does well and wins and lives a holy life, it serves as a good witness to the lost around him that he is genuine. And God just may use that as the tool to draw them to the gospel. Several caveats. This doesn't mean that you don't have to share the gospel with your mouth. Just live good in front of the people. That is the biggest heresy I've heard in the last several years, and I hate it with everything that's in me because the Bible clearly states, how shall they hear without a preacher? And the Bible clearly shows that Jesus didn't just go around living a good life, but he told people eyeball to eyeball, nose to nose, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. How shall they hear without a preacher? How shall they believe on him whom they have not heard? Go and tell the Bible says. But, like unto that, 
If your talk doesn't match your walk, then you have a poor witness. And so he says you need to win the fight against sin in order to protect your reputation to the Gentiles around you. Now, he's not speaking of Gentiles and Jew versus Gentile. Remember, he's speaking to the church. So he's operating with the idea, the spiritual idea, that in Christ there is no Jew or Gentile, as Paul said. And Peter would agree with that. Um, and so clearly from the context, because he's just come off talking about the church, he's using Gentile in the fleshly sense to describe anybody that is lost. Because as Paul said, the true Jews, the true Israel, those that are saved, you know, blah, 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 blah. I'm not going to get into all the biblical theology here. I can if you'd like, but we don't have that kind of time. So he's, in other words, you could say it this way. Let me put, let me put what Peter just said in plain, plain English. Stop living in sin and claiming to be a Christian because that's, that does you no favors when you go and share the gospel with non-Christians. It makes you look like a hypocrite. Nobody wants to listen to a hypocrite. So the external uh, consequence of the internal conflict is your witness among the lost. Now, does this mean that they're going to love you? No, we're not called to make the lost love us. And matter of fact, they're going to hate you because you speak the truth. Same reason they hated Jesus. Somebody said, well, you need to be more Christ-like. Well, how much so? Because they liked Christ so much, they killed him. <laughs> you know what I mean? People say, well, you, you just need to be more loving and more like Jesus. Well, which, which Jesus? The Jesus of your opinion or the one of the Bible? Because the one of the Bible made a whip and tried to hit people with it, flipped over tables, and then looked at the Pharisees in front of everybody and called them snakes and told them they were going to hell, Matthew 23, if you need to look that up. So which Jesus are we talking about? The American Western limp wrist concept of Jesus or the biblical historical Jesus Christ of Nazareth? Now, I'm not saying you should be cantankerous for the sake of being cantankerous. You do need to be loving, but you also need to be truthful. Anyways, we're getting off subject here. The external consequence of the internal conflict is the believer's witness among the lost. Now, he says that God may use this, okay, because he goes on, he says that they may glorify God in the day of visitation. Now, the definite article, the, is not present in the Greek. So he's not speaking about a specific day of visitation. Some read just the English and say, well, this must be talking about the last days. That's nonsensical because, again, in the Greek, there is no definite article. Um, and then secondly, why would they glorify God in judgment? Uh, that's that's not the picture that is painted in the book of Revelation. It says the people are weeping and wailing and begging for death under the judgment of God, not going, yeah, we glorify you, God. So what he's speaking of is any time the Lord may visit them, so the Lord may convict them and use your witness as part and parcel of drawing them to the gospel. It's not either or, it's both and. And so that is the external con, uh, consequence of the internal conflict, a.k.a. the fight against the flesh, is it affects your witness among the lost. Now, in conclusion, believers are in a fight against the flesh. It's an internal conflict that is won by the weapon of the word. 
Secondly, it is followed by an external consequence, and that is the believer's witness. Unbelievers are watching, and they already want to talk about you. Do you remember what he said? He said, when they, not if they talk bad about you, when they talk bad. If you're a Christian, non-Christians naturally are going to be predisposed against you. That's biblical. Jesus said they hated me, they're going to hate you. I worry about people that nobody hates because the majority of the world hated Jesus Christ. Let me put it another way. Charles Spurgeon, the great bearded, cigar-smoking English Baptist of yesteryear said it this way, a church that is a friend to the world is an enemy of God. And so they're naturally going to talk bad about you. Peter's point is, Make sure that you live in such a holy way that when they do say bad things about you, they're lying. In other words, don't put bullets in their guns. Don't give them ammo by living like the devil. If They're, they're going to call you a hypocrite anyways. That, that's a lost person's favorite excuse. Christians are hypocrites. Well, they're going to say that anyways, but let's just make sure that when they say that, it's not actually true. Because if it's actually true, now it's our fault. Because we didn't abstain from the freshly lust that war against the soul. The fight against the flesh. It's internal conflict won by the weapon of the word. It is an external consequence. It affects the witness of the believer's word. How you live matters, child of God. Because it affects your witness among the lost. I hope you'll keep studying the book of First Peter and follow along. And let me say this, we're in the Christmas season. Um, we're, we're celebrating, commemorating the virgin birth of the perfect, sinless Son of God incarnate who was 100% God, 100% man with 0% sin. I hope that this year, aside from the lights and the candy and the coffee and the food and the hot chocolate and the movies, I've already watched Christmas Vacation like six times by this point, aside from all that, that you realize the central point of Christmas is the cross, not the manger. Yeah, he sent Jesus in a manger, but he sent Jesus for the purpose of the cross. I love to say this to my church here at Cedar Shoals. The manger lays under the shadow of the cross. And so God bless you. Have a wonderful day.